So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about now what? Last weekend, we gathered for Good Friday. And then we had a great Easter celebration on Sunday. We remembered Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God incarnate, which means in the flesh, crucified, died, and buried. Then we celebrated Jesus raised again to life on Easter morning, raised victorious over sin and death, and we proclaim Jesus is alive. Now what? What do we do with that? What do you and I do with that? This morning, I want to start by talking about something called an epilogue. In literature, an epilogue comes after the events of the main story have been completed. It's intended to answer lingering questions or to tie up loose plot threads. Ultimately, it's concerned with what happened after, and it tries to give a sense of what's next. If you've read J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, you'll already be familiar with the concept of epilogue, even if you're not sure what it is yet. Frodo's trip to the Grey Havens and his sailing away into the west with Gandalf, Elrond, and Galadriel is an epilogue to the story of the rings. It's what happened after the Ring of Power was destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom, after evil was vanquished and good won. Likewise, when we see Harry Potter and the gang at King's Cross Station sending their own kids off to Hogwarts, it's a picture of what was made possible because evil was defeated and good won. The passage we're looking at today is like that. It, it acts as an epilogue to the events of Easter in John's Gospel. It tells us a little bit about what happened after Easter. And it ties up some loose ends, which I think might be instructive today. It helps to answer a question which still matters. That question is, if we have just witnessed the death and resurrection of Emmanuel, God with us, if we've seen death swallowed up in victory, what happens now? Now what? Let's see what John's epilogue can tell us. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. So this is the start of John's epilogue. And he begins by placing us with the disciples in Galilee. We know from Mark's gospel 
that the disciples were told to meet Jesus in Galilee by the angel that spoke to Mary outside the empty tomb. Galilee was sort of home base for Jesus and his disciples during his ministry. And it's where he called Peter, James, and John to follow him. Those same disciples, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, are among the group mentioned here in our text. It's no surprise then that we should find them here. They've simply come home. Take a moment and picture the scene. Here's this group of guys sitting on the seashore, likely in Bethsaida where Peter, James, and John are known to have lived. The family fishing boats are bobbing in the water nearby. It's probably evening and the sun is getting low on the horizon. They may have been waiting here all day. Maybe they've been waiting for a couple of days at this point, waiting for Jesus to come and meet them. Where they are is probably near the spot where Jesus first called them. It, it would be a location of significance, which is familiar to them and to Jesus. It would be a perfectly logical place to wait. In some sense, they've come full circle. Having left with Jesus, they traveled with him for better than two years, witnessing his miraculous works of power and being discipled by him. Then they followed him into Jerusalem and watched him challenge the religious establishment. Then they watched that same establishment wrongfully accuse and sentence him to death. They watched as he went peacefully to the cross. They watched him die. Then they saw him raised again to life. And now they've come home. Now they're waiting for their Lord to come and meet them. Now all the excitement is beginning to dissipate as time and distance start to settle in. Now they're getting a little bored and probably even a little antsy, sitting there on the shoreline, waiting. They're almost certainly thinking, now what? After a while, and probably because of where they are, they, they sort of collectively shrug their shoulders and decide to go fishing. After all, fishing, sorry, well, more accurately, John tells us that it's Peter who decides to go fishing. After all, fishing is what Peter knows best, and why waste the night? The other disciples decide to go along. I think it's important that it's Peter that makes the call, though. Of all the disciples, Peter is probably feeling the least qualified, maybe the least worthy to call himself a disciple. After all, he denied Jesus three times leading up to the crucifixion, even after swearing, surely not I, Lord, when Jesus predicted that he would. At this point, Peter probably isn't quite sure where he stands in the whole Jesus thing. And so, I think it makes sense that it's Peter who looks around the beach, maybe checks his watch, 
and then decides that the best thing to do now might be just to go back to his previous life. Back to being a fisherman rather than a fisher of men. And the other disciples just decide to go along. Now, this is where I start scratching my head. I mean, didn't these guys get it? Why are they just standing around on the beach? Why are they going fishing? Didn't they understand what Jesus had just accomplished? Didn't they understand what they were supposed to do with it all? Haven't they read the New Testament? Oh, yeah. They don't have one. We'll have to cut them some slack then. So Peter and the boys, they go fishing. All night they fish. And despite being experienced fishermen, they catch nothing, which I think is also significant. Let's keep reading. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, Fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. Let's dig in some more. The boys have fished all night and come up empty. At this point, they're most likely getting ready to pack it in. Then, in the early morning twilight, a voice calls out from the shore. Someone on the beach is telling them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. They decide to go for it. Maybe this person on the beach sees something they can't. Maybe they remember the miraculous catch of fish they got the last time they were fishing on this lake and somebody on shore told them to cast their nets again. That was the time they met Jesus and decided to follow him. Either way, they, they do cast the net, and immediately they catch an abundance of fish. That's the moment that it clicks. The symmetry between this event and the previous miracle is too obvious to miss now. It seems that John is the first to make the connection, or at least the first to find his voice and say what everyone else is probably already thinking. It's the Lord. And just like that, Peter's in the water and swimming to shore. 
The rest of the disciples follow behind, dragging this abundant catch of fish beside them in the water because they can't get it into the boat. When they get to shore, they find Jesus cooking them breakfast, bread and fish. A strong parallel with another of Jesus' miracles when he fed the 5,000 not far from Bethsaida. But I wonder if there's something else here. Their last meal together was a supper, and it marked the closing of a chapter in their lives together. Now, Jesus invites them to have breakfast. This is the start of a new day and a new chapter in their lives and their relationship with the Lord. What's the significance then? Well, at least in part, I think there's something to be said about the futility of their work apart from Christ and apart from his calling for their lives. Remember, Jesus called these guys to be fishers of men and no longer fishermen. It indicates that having committed themselves to Jesus, there's no going back to their old way of life. Remember, the sun has set on that chapter of their lives. I think there's also something to be said about God's provision. When Jesus shows up, he fills the net to overflowing. And what is more, he's already provided breakfast for them by the time the fish get hauled to shore. Jesus didn't need the fish they caught to make them breakfast. He already had the means to provide for these guys, and does so in such great abundance, specifically when they act in obedience to his instruction. The lesson here is not only that there's no going back to their old lives, but there's also no need to. I think there's a need here for us to recognize that we sometimes try to do things in our own strength. We strive towards our goals instead of trusting in the generous provision and wisdom of our Lord. So I guess the first part of now what is that Jesus changes everything for those that follow him. Let's keep reading. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Here we find another common element of epilogue in our text. Often an epilogue contains some element of redemption. Let's go back to one of our pop culture reference points for a minute. Warning, spoilers. There's a point in the Lord of the Rings 
where Frodo fails in his task as the ring bearer. At the climax of the whole saga, when he's standing inside the volcano and the ring is meant to be thrown into the fire so that evil can be destroyed, evil grips his heart instead. And he decides to keep the ring for himself. Now the ring ends up in the fire anyway and, and evil does get destroyed. But it's not because of Frodo. Frodo fails in his quest. He falls. In the epilogue, when Frodo boards the ship and sails into the west with Gandalf and the others, it's a picture of an undeserved redemption. Here, in John 21, we find Jesus redeeming Peter. Three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter gets to say, yes, Lord. Three affirmations of love to cancel out three shame-filled denials which serve to redeem the relationship between Peter and Jesus. I wonder if you can identify with Peter on this point. Have you ever had a, a spiritual high in your faith journey only to be confronted with a failure? A real low point that takes all the wind out of your sails. Is it fair to say that something like that has happened in the life of our church? Maybe you haven't found faith yet, but you know what it's like to experience the rush of success in some area of your life like watching the Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup or landing that dream job. The rush of excitement that comes with those events but then seems to fade so quickly. I can remember attending youth conventions in my teens. Whole weekends packed with worship, gifted speakers and small groups that met together to dig into scripture. 300 or more teenagers gathered on a university campus doing Jesus stuff together like you just don't experience in any other setting. A unique, spiritually significant experience. Maybe you have your own examples. Maybe you went on a retreat or attended a women's conference like IF or a men's conference. Maybe you went on a mission trip somewhere like Nicaragua. Whatever it was, you experienced a life-changing encounter with Jesus. I suspect the one common thread woven into all such experiences is that the leaders and the pastors at these events warned us about the potential low that comes after you leave. You see, after the convention, the mission trip, the retreat, or the Stanley Cup final, we all inevitably go home to our Galilee. We go back to the routines of life, school, work commitments, and the luster on that old Stanley Cup starts to fade. As Christians, we end up spending less time worshiping, praying, and reading Scripture. Our responsibilities start to bring us down from our spiritual high and create distance in our relationship with Jesus. In essence, we're all a little less connected to him. And as a result, we end up back where we started. And it's into this reality that Peter's experience speaks to us. 
Peter was present at the transfiguration of Jesus. If you don't know the story, it's this moment where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and there he's transformed. And his glory shines like the sun, and Moses and Elijah, the great fathers of the Jewish faith, show up. Peter literally has the penultimate mountaintop experience. But then he hits rock bottom in his denials of Jesus. And he loses his shine. Have you ever fallen that hard? Ever felt ashamed because maybe you missed an opportunity to identify with Jesus or an opportunity to witness to someone about Christ? I've been there. Ever been called out by someone for not behaving like a Christian in the workplace or at school? It's happened to me. Easter reminds us that Jesus came to restore our relationship with God in spite of our shame. I think Peter's experience gives us some context for our own failures, and it gives us a sure hope that we are also restored when we fall down. We don't have to live in our failures. Easter restores us to life as well. So I think the second part of now what is that Jesus sets us free from our guilt and our shame. We've been redeemed, and so we can live every day in the confidence of that truth. I think there's something more in this exchange between Jesus and Peter than just the restoration of a relationship, though. Jesus starts by asking Peter, do you love me more than these? What's he referring to? Is he asking if Peter loves him more than the other disciples do? Or is he asking if Peter loves him more than he loves the fishing boats floating nearby, which represent his old life? Or is he asking if Peter loves him more than the catch of fish in the holding basin nearby, which represents the comfort and security that abundance provides? I think Jesus is asking Peter all of those things. He's asking Peter to make a choice about what his priority will be going forward. Will he be a fisherman or a fisher of men? Jesus is not just restoring their relationship in this exchange. He's redeeming Peter's calling. Jesus is saying, if you love me, feed my sheep. So I think the third part of now what is that Jesus calls us to something more. So what is Jesus calling you to? Jesus tells Peter three times to feed my sheep. And in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he tells his followers, which includes you if you're a Christian, to go and make disciples of all nations. So I'll ask again. Now what? What do we do with Easter? I suppose for some people the answer is nothing because it You're not at the point yet where you even accept the premise of Easter. 
as I've just described it. You don't need God. But for those of us that do accept that we need God, one option is to insulate and, and even isolate ourselves from the world while we wait for Jesus to return. We can pour our energy into supplying for our own needs. We can say, He is risen on Sunday, Easter Sunday. And then go back to our version of fishing on Easter Monday. But there's another option. We could instead acknowledge that our own calling to participate in fulfilling Jesus' ministry through the church. That will look different for everyone. For some, it's a calling to ministry. For others, it's a calling to serve either within the church or outside it in the community. For still others, it's a calling to be witnesses in their workplace, out in the business world, or in the recreational arena. In essence, it's the same calling that Jesus placed on Peter's life, which is to be a fisher of men. Whatever it is that God has called you into vocationally, Easter reminds us that we're also called to participate in restoring people to him so that they also can experience the redeeming power of the empty tomb. That's why this epilogue in John is so important. It's into Peter's failure and lack of purpose that Jesus comes and restores Peter's relationship with himself and redeems Peter's calling. After all, isn't that what Easter is all about? God breaking into a fallen world to restore a fallen creation, which includes humanity, into relationship with himself, and to redeem our calling to be his image bearers. Now, what are you going to do with that? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we look back at, at Easter, we are so grateful for the work that you accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, I pray that as we go out this week, we would be reminded that Easter changes everything, that you change everything for us. We would also be reminded that you have set us free from our sin and our shame. We don't have to be afraid. We can be bold. And that you call us to something more. Every day, something new and exciting for your kingdom. So Lord, I pray that you will guide us, lead us, and encourage us as we pursue our callings in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.